Hello, and welcome to episode number 34 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. There are a few cases in the lore of the UFO phenomenon that tend to get a disproportionate amount of attention. When it comes to cases involving not just sightings of UFOs slash UAP, but actual contact with non-human intelligences, i.e. aliens, historically, cases involving scary tales of humorless, unfeeling, and sometimes outright malevolent entities have tended to get a lot of, as they say, press. But as we discussed in last week's episode, evidence actually suggests positive encounters are more prevalent than negative ones, especially when, as we pointed out a few times now, experiencers have the necessary time and perspective to be able to consider their experiences beyond the scope of the initial ontological shock. Now, while the ontological shock is front and center for many, in fact most, and completely understandably so, there do exist cases where people have positive encounters with these others from the outset, with almost none of the usual fight-flight response involved. And when they do exist, they often involve a very distinct kind of human being. One such case is that of Dorothy Isaac. This case is one of my personal favorites for a variety of different reasons. First off, the case involves an amazing degree of documentation. Indeed, spanning over decades, Dorothy Isaac, in her quiet, no-nonsense manner, managed to capture literally thousands of feet of footage cataloging her encounters with a wide variety of entities. Secondly, because the majority of this footage was captured on 8mm film, and this happened before the proliferation of video editing software, the footage is very difficult to dismiss. And as I'm sure you would expect, believe me, experts have tried. Part of what surprises me to this day is that her footage is not studied and discussed more often considering these factors. Thirdly, the footage itself is astonishing, both in terms of quantity and quality. One particularly fascinating aspect of the footage involves how one frame of film will show lighted orbs in the sky, and then the very next frame will show a bizarre array of zigzagging lines of light jumping all over the frame. And then in the very next frame, all you'll see once again are orbs, like in the first of the three frames. In other words, the transformation is happening so quickly that all the human eye recognizes in real time is a flash. Finally, a key aspect of what makes this case so particularly compelling is the figure of Dorothy herself. Those who were lucky enough to have met her reported that she was a grounded, down-to-earth soul, not a seeker of attention whatsoever, and someone who always exuded kindness, wisdom, and humility. If character is a key component in evaluating these kinds of cases, Dorothy clearly passes with flying colors. Highly pertinent to this podcast and the inquiries we've been making, not only into the nature of the UFO phenomenon, but also into the ultimate nature of all that is, is that Dorothy's encounters were as diverse as they were astounding, involving levels of contact that both included and that go far beyond the initial telepathic messages she received while first recording dazzling lights in the sky. The fascinating, compelling, and illuminating case of Dorothy Isaac is the topic of this, the 34th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast.
Much of the material we'll be covering in this week's episode is from a book by Peter Gutila called Contact with Beings of Light. This is the story of Dorothy Isaac. Some of the material is also from a movie that was based on the book called Capturing the Light, the true story of Dorothy Isaac, an alien contactee who has accumulated over 30,000 feet of film footage backing her claim. That is the actual name of the movie, a long title. Now, Dorothy Isaac was an amazing figure, and she just died this past year, January 29th, 2021, and she was born on September 24th, 1922, so she lived almost a century. Now, like many experiencers, Dorothy's life was not without difficulty. She lived through World War II and had a very difficult time during that season of life. Later on, because she had heard it is peaceful and laid back, Dorothy and her husband relocated to Canada, and she moved to a town called Richmond, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Now, by the way, prior to moving to Canada, Dorothy and her husband were natives of Hong Kong. Now, the first encounters Dorothy began having were in the 1970s in Richmond, again, a suburb of Vancouver. The first one, like many of them, was quite profound and surprising, to say the least. It began when Dorothy was preparing to do her daily meditation. Quoting from the book, quote, With a sigh, Dorothy left the window, lit a small candle on a nearby bureau, and knelt quietly in meditation. But this time it was different, she recalled later. While I was quieting my mind, I had a most beautiful sensation. It's hard to describe. It was something I'd never known before, like a great upsurge of love and happiness. Silently, she lingered in the exhilaration of the experience until it ebbed slowly and was gone. Dorothy stood, straightened her shoulders, and suddenly felt bewildered. Now she had the strangest feeling she was being watched. She walked across the room and peered out the window and drew a quick, involuntary breath. There, bright and crystalline, suspended in the middle of a clear patch of sky, was a beautiful spinning object that looked like a huge diamond with a horizontal ring of lights revolving around the middle. As she put it, the object was magnificent and brilliantly lit by lights with a rotating disk of light at the base. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Momentarily doubting her senses, she turned away and shut her eyes, then looked back. The sparkling object was no illusion. It was definitely there, dazzling and crisp and seemingly alive. In her journal, Dorothy wrote, then, as if it had read my doubtful thoughts, the crystal-like object began to dart in and out of clouds, and I instantly had the impression it was giving me further proof it was real. It really was quite wonderful to look at. Dorothy was powerfully captivated by the warm brilliance of the UFO. There was something in it, or coming from it, that evoked feelings of elation, optimism, and expectation in her. But the incident was also puzzling and more so when both the sensations and the object disappeared abruptly. The sudden emptiness left her slightly confused, but calm, almost to the point of indifference. It was odd, she said. I didn't feel any emotion about it. I just turned from the window and went on with my chores as if the object had come and gone, and that was the end of it. Dorothy didn't realize that her earlier feelings of blithe expectation were portents of things to come. The unexpected adventure was far from over, unquote. Now, in a moment, we'll get to an event that happened later that same day, that evening, in fact. 
But first, a couple comments about what we just read. Number one, you have, again, like we've discussed before in this podcast with the UFO phenomenon, someone telepathically receiving messages from the others. Furthermore, they were able to even control her mental and emotional state. You notice that that happened. And even more than that, what's interesting is as soon as they left, both the feeling and the object in the sky disappeared simultaneously, which again is fascinating. Again, even more interesting, based on my own experience and other experiences I've discussed before, she had a strange response. Rather than being in shock and wonder at what she'd just seen, she walked away as if it was no big deal and went about her chores. Again, a strange choice of behavior based on what she had just witnessed. And now I'd like to move on to what happened later that same day, that evening. And again, this is from the book Contact with Beings of Light by Peter Gutila. Quoting from the book again, quote, It was almost seven o'clock, Dorothy remembered, when an intense beam of light pierced the living room drapes and shone directly on me. She got up quietly, opened the drapes, and was half surprised to see an enormous stationary ball of light in the sky, low on the horizon. The glowing ball was different from the spinning wheel she had seen earlier. Of this she was certain. Flashing brightly, it hovered, then started to wobble from side to side. When it did this, Dorothy became aware of something, something mental. Communication, she thought, like it was touching and searching my mind. I know I heard the words, we are real, we are here, it is not your imagination. Despite the reassuring words of the eerie message, Dorothy was suspicious. Was this really something otherworldly? Was it communication or merely a trick of the mind? She decided to test herself and the mysterious light source together in one move. She got a flashlight and returned to the window. After a few seconds of staring at the object, she said mentally, if you can hear me, please repeat what I'm going to do with my light. She blinked the flashlight three times to the right and three times to the left. The object responded with three blinks to its right and three to its left. She repeated the test, but this time she flashed the light above and below. The object answered in kind. Finally, Dorothy zigzagged the beam of the flashlight and the ball of light zigzagged from side to side. Following the initial exchange with Dorothy's flashlight, the glowing ball took on a life of its own. It danced, pulsated, and maneuvered sharply back and forth. This action and interaction gave Dorothy pause. Was she letting her imagination get the best of her, or was this the beginning of a new relationship with the unknown? She tried to reason with herself, to find some compromise between fantasy and fact, but she could not deny what she was seeing. The object, the UFO, the thing in the sky was anything but imaginary because it moved and responded intelligently. It was real. It had to be. And the implication ignited her curiosity. Unquote. Now, reflecting on what I just read and reflecting on accounts from many people who've had experiences with the UFO phenomenon, I'm always struck by how similar experiences are. I know several people personally, and I've read many, many accounts of people who've had contact with UFOs and who've then demonstrated that they are intelligently controlled and that the intelligences behind these UFOs are in contact with these people by doing things like Dorothy did, using a flashlight and asking them mentally, telepathically to repeat a certain behavior. 
even when they don't telepathically send that message, some people just see a UFO, start moving a flashlight around, flashing it in different ways, different manners, and their actions are reflected to a T by these objects. It really is astounding. And it's interesting to see how Dorothy, like any one of us, is testing her mental stability at this point. She's wondering, is this fantasy? Am I imagining this? She goes through various tests to assure herself this is indeed real. And now I'd like to read from an, a subsequent experience she had. And this one's very interesting, and it will have implications for how she regarded these beings, or at least some of them. Because again, what's fascinating about her case, beyond the 30,000 feet footage of 8mm film that she captured, is how diverse her experiences were. Quoting from the book again, quote, That morning at 4 o'clock, she was roused from a sound sleep by a warm beam of light and was again drawn to the window. Duncan stirred but didn't awaken, and she thought better of disturbing him. Outside, the beautiful bright ball was back, but much closer than before, so close, in fact, that it made the tops of tall trees sway from side to side in the otherwise windless morning air. The ball hovered, showing no signs of movement until, in a bright burst, one by one, lights of various sizes and shapes poured from it in massive numbers. Even though the explosion of activity alarmed Dorothy, the feeling quickly subsided. Her curiosity was overwhelming, and she was determined to watch more of the display. Duncan stirred fitfully in the bed, turning and shifting as if he were trying to waken, but couldn't. Probably it was better that he didn't wake up, given that his doubting nature might somehow interfere. She was thinking this, but she had never thought of it in that way before, and she wasn't sure if the idea was hers or if it had come from somewhere else. Whatever its source, it made sense." Unquote. Now, there's a couple very interesting points in this section I just read from. Number one, Duncan, her husband, didn't awaken even though it suggested he was trying to awaken. Now, of course, we've read about this before. These others seem to not only be able to control our perception, our consciousness, while we are experiencing them, but they can also control others so that they stay dormant or asleep or whatever. And that's what happened, supposedly, it seems like, with her husband here. Secondly, what's even more interesting is that the reasoning that's provided to Dorothy, a thought comes into her mind basically, suggesting that his doubting nature will have a negative impact on the experience, perhaps even dissolve the connection that allows her to experience these others. Again, very fascinating, and this touches on what we've discussed in recent podcast episodes, where what we prime an experience with has a direct effect on what we end up experiencing. And now jumping back into that incident covered in the book, I quote, At that moment, Dorothy heard or felt the words, don't be afraid. The message was followed by mental images of lighted probes gliding wraith-like through physical obstacles, scanning the earth, listening, watching, gathering detailed information of earth life in billions of luminous memories, sorting, storing, and soaking in all the natural and man-made events of human history. All of this came and was gone in seconds. Dorothy brought her hands to her face. The onslaught was overpowering. She had no idea what any of this meant or where the images came from, and it drained her emotionally. She took a deep breath, stepped back from the window, and leaned against the bedroom wall. 
Closing her eyes, she stood for a minute and was suddenly overcome by a deep, palpable calm. She turned slowly to her right and looked up. Just outside the window, a small white light appeared, passed through the glass, and glided toward her. It stopped at eye level, hovered momentarily, then danced and darted around the room. Strange and utterly silent, the little elf light was quite bright but cast no glare and produced no shadows. Moving in a smooth, fluid motion toward the bookcase, it hopped from book to book before leaving through the window in the direction of the bigger, hovering light above the trees. Dorothy glanced at the bookcase, wondering if they were scanning her books. She tried to rouse Duncan, but he was sleeping soundly, and she gave up after a few ineffective nudges. Then, as the large light continued to hover in full command of its place in the sky, Dorothy had a sudden attack of anxiety. The change was disorienting and in sharp contrast to her feelings of just minutes earlier. For some reason, which she later attributed to an instinctive fight-or-flight reflex, it occurred to her that she might be watching the onset of an invasion. She hurried to the phone and called the tower at the Richmond airport, and out of shyness or embarrassment, she reported her sightings in minimum detail. She asked if they had received any UFO reports, presuming they must have gotten dozens considering the intensity of the display so close to a populated area. The airport spokesman was polite but patronizing, his tone implying she was either drunk or deluded or both. We've had no reports of any UFOs in the skies above Richmond, he said in a flat voice, unquote. Now, what I love about the previous passage is how it covers in detail, quite honestly, what humans go through when they experience these kinds of events. At first, she's astonished and amazed and touched. She sees how there seems to be a gentle way that this object responds to her by sending this smaller orb into her room. But then fear creeps in. And when she sees this thing jumping from book to book, rather than seeing that as playful, she wonders if it is scanning. And then suddenly she even wonders, in retrospect, if a fight or flight kind of response kicked in and she suddenly wondered if this was the onset of an invasion force. Now, again, what's also fascinating is that Dorothy assumed other people were seeing this too. She didn't assume she was special. She saw these things in what she assumed was consensus reality, objective reality in the skies outside of her house. And if she was seeing all of this activity, she assumed other people in Richmond and the other areas of Vancouver would be seeing it as well. So being a good citizen and wanting to be part of a larger unit of consciousness, she ends up calling the airport to find out if other people are also experiencing this. She finds out they are not. And actually, she's patronized for even assuming such a thing could take place. Very interesting. It shows her human side and in quick order, in quick succession, demonstrates how all of us tend to respond when we have these experiences that are so otherworldly. Now, as I just mentioned, Dorothy assumed at this point that other people were seeing these objects. Quickly, she realized, though, that people were not. Her family members weren't. Her neighbors weren't. The airport authority wasn't noticing anything either. So then she began to wonder, why me? How am I involved in this and why? Well, in a later exchange with these others, she got some answers. They communicated to her telepathically about their ultimate intention and aims, why they were there, 
and why they had chosen her to be involved in the process. Quoting from the book again, quote, At nine o'clock, the visitors were back. This time, dozens of small, luminous diamonds hovered, wriggled, and played in the sky as Dorothy again watched at the bedroom window. From the outset, she was bathed in a feeling of warmth, which was both physical and visceral. The vague fears and pressures faded amid the glowing splendor of the lights. Unable to resist the temptation, she asked aloud, What are you doing here? What do you want? There was a brief shimmer of amethyst-colored light and the utterance, We are observing, we see, we hear. Dorothy heard the words in her mind, but they seemed to be audible as well, and she remembered wondering how it was that they spoke English. The response was instant and to the point. No language is necessary. We speak through the mind. Clearly, a deliberate and equal communication was taking place. There was nothing tentative or ambiguous in the exchange, and Dorothy realized the significance of what had occurred. She had never thought of herself as telepathic, but the words of the visitors were distinct. It was as if she had been talking to somebody standing next to her in the room. This was far more than a minor revelation because it implied the visitors could communicate directly with the mind which carried the further implication of an utter lack of privacy. Deception was a way of life for human beings, taught from the cradle to the grave to mask their true feelings, to never reveal too much about themselves. Could the visitors detect secret thoughts, attitudes, emotional states, and perhaps character? Dorothy asked this question, and the answer was, as she wrote later, expectedly consistent. They told me that just to look at people, to invade their privacy, was not their purpose and was of no interest to them. They've been watching the planet for eons and are well aware of the way people behave, which they find appalling. Their purpose was, and is, to focus on the direction and eventual evolution of mankind. Dorothy also asked, why me? What do you want of me? They said they knew me from long ago and were familiar with the kind of person I am. It's a person's total being and character that determines whether a communication takes place. If the right qualities aren't there, people won't see them, or if they do, they'll be terrified of them or try to explain them in some way that fits their own beliefs. All this is determined by the state of the person who's observing them." Unquote. Now, what we just read was very illuminating. We've discussed this on previous podcasts, how what we bring to these experiences ends up impacting what we ultimately experience. According to Dorothy here, many people don't even have these experiences because they're predetermined models of reality. Their paradigms about reality prevent them from seeing these things. Now, whether or not you believe Dorothy, there is mounting evidence, as far as I can tell, when I pay attention to the compendium of the data, that this really is true, that what we bring to these experiences matters. And if we have a model of reality that simply excludes the possibility, then often this will actually prevent us from seeing these things. And even if we do, we will often quickly dismiss them. Very important, and it's important to keep all of this in mind when we think about the different factors that impact what kind of experiences people have and who has these experiences ultimately. Now, speaking of responses to these experiences, Dorothy began to have some negative reactions from those around her, from her family, from her friends. 
She came from a Catholic background and she began to get religious backlash when she started sharing her experiences. And let's quote from the book again, quote, Dorothy Isaac's nightly encounters with the visitors continued unabated for several weeks. Each time they came, something new was learned. It was, in her words, an enlightenment of immense grandeur and depth. It was also beautiful. But there was an unforeseen backlash. Between periods of contact, Dorothy discussed her experiences with others, and that was, as it turned out, a serious mistake. Well-intentioned friends, mostly those of strong religious convictions, felt obliged to warn her about demons and evil and the potential for sinister motives behind the outwardly benign behavior of the visitors. At first, I didn't pay much attention to those comments from other people, she said, but it must have got to me because thoughts of demons and evil doings began to torment me and interrupt my communications with the lights. I know they sense my doubt and anxiety. Dorothy realized that once fear and hostility or doubt weakened the rapport, the communication was degraded. It was clear to her that the light beings, as she would come to call them, were aware of the change because the overall vitality of the communications diminished as though the bond had been suddenly breached. At the same time, apparitions or lower order beings whose nature and affect were intensely uncomfortable showed up. Dorothy could not identify the intruders or presences, but frequently felt their emanations, occasionally glimpsing coal-black indistinct shapes that exhibited a distinct aversion to light. She was never given to thinking about ghosts or phantasms, but the presences were definitely ghost-like, preferring darkness and always scurrying into the shadows whenever she turned on the house lights. Dorothy quickly pieced together the connection between light aversion and the nature of the negativity she had allowed to enter her mind. Lower forces hate light, she was told by the light beings, and it occurred to her that those who sought to infect her with fear were themselves being influenced by the lower forces. It was an unpleasant thought and a dismal commentary on the human condition. She had to free herself from the destructive sway of the people around her, even those who claimed to have her best interests at heart, unquote. Now, that last section really was the mother load, the gold mine when it comes to being pertinent to what we've been discussing recently. In fact, it feels synchronistic that I came across this recently after what we've talked about in recent podcasts. Again, we've talked about what we bring to the experiences and how that ends up impacting the ultimate nature of the experience. We even discussed how our intentionality, our degree of positivity or negativity, our degree of fear or faith really impacts the events, even impacts the kinds of entities we ultimately end up encountering. That's exactly what Dorothy is describing here. And she experienced both. This is very telling. When she was positive, hopeful, her usual state, she was communicated to by the light beings. When she began to let fear creep in and negativity and began wondering about evil, then suddenly a different kind of entity altogether, dark beings scurrying around. And she recognized a direct connection between her intentionality, her belief system, and the nature of what was manifesting. This really does demonstrate how much a role we play in this process. 
Now, Dorothy quickly learned this lesson about manifestation and how it was tied to her state of being. Quoting from the book again, quote, It did not take long for Dorothy to grasp what was happening. She summed it up thus, We are where we dwell. When we live in a state of fear, dread, suspicion, that's what we receive. It's really just that simple. With a conscious effort, Dorothy was able to rid herself of the encroaching negativity. The presences vanished, and eventually a high level of communication was reestablished. It was a bitter lesson, but the guiding principle of positive mind, innocent heart, became her newly acquired rule of thumb and her general recommendation to others, particularly if they wanted to share in her experiences either directly or indirectly, unquote. Now, from my point of view, this case hasn't got nearly enough attention within ufology. And again, I think this points to a bias, a prejudice within ufology to look to only certain kinds of cases. I think groups like MUFON have been guilty of this in the past. Now, interestingly, historically, one of the main figures in ufology got involved with Dorothy's case, and he was convinced of its legitimacy. Here I speak of J. Allen Hynek, the godfather of ufology, you might call him. He met with Dorothy many times, was also convinced of her credibility, and was amazed, astounded by the credibility of her footage. He examined it forensically and was convinced that it was legitimate and she was capturing something otherworldly. In fact, he talked to her about dimension hopping, beings coming from different dimensions. He had no problem discussing these matters with her, which was a great relief to her to have a scientist of his credibility agree with her. Now, I highly recommend you read this book, Contact with Beings of Light. It documents many of Dorothy's encounters and many of her abilities to perceive things beyond the usual spectrum of what's normal for human beings. It's very fascinating and it's covered in the book. I'd also highly recommend you watch the movie based on the book because some things happen in that movie spontaneously, which are quite astounding. One particular event I'll share with you. While they are interviewing Dorothy's daughter about her mother, the daughter is standing in the kitchen while they're filming this movie. And behind the daughter, outside the window, a light suddenly appears and starts darting back and forth behind the hair and the head of the daughter who's being interviewed. Very fascinating. The family all watched the film later on, and even her doubting family members were shocked because they could not explain this light that was appearing behind the daughter, who is an adult daughter, by the way, who is being interviewed. Very fascinating. They tried to come to terms with it. They had tried to figure out if it could be car lights or something else in the distance. Nothing fit the description. It really did seem to be these others manifesting on film in real time while they were filming this movie. I highly recommend you watch it. And by the way, the name of the movie based on the book is Capturing the Light. And now I'd like to leave you with a few additional thoughts. Number one, Dorothy mentioned she had encountered the small greys, and she actually learned that they were androids. And she says that their straight, get-to-the-point humorlessness and lack of emotional affect that had caused many people to feel unnerved was based on their programmed kind of nature. And part of the reason why the small greys interact with people a lot, according to her, it's because we are the dangerous ones and some of these others don't feel safe around us because of our 
sudden reactions, our fight or flight kind of reactions. She also mentions that she distinguished two distinct groups that she encountered. One was a group of ETs, and actually she encountered different kinds of ETs. Some were quite biological like us, others were more like light beings, but they were still extraterrestrial, creatures just like us. But she also mentions encounters with what she calls the beings of light, and she really does see these as more angelic in nature, not dogmatically angelic like in the biblical understanding so much, in terms of being tied to a creation story about God and Satan and all of that, but more that they are agents of the cosmic intelligence at their center of everything. And they are doing the bidding of this central intelligence and that they are here to help human beings. And the ones that she encountered that are consistently positive and illuminating are these beings of light. I would just like to add to that, that my own research suggests this may very well be true, that there are extraterrestrials visiting us. Some of them are visiting us from within our own space-time kind of reality, meaning they're coming from different planets within our physical universe. Others may be interdimensional, hopping across different dimensions and able to visit us instantaneously. But there are also these beings that Dorothy refers to as beings of light who may be extra dimensional. And by that, I mean they are not part of our space-time matrix whatsoever. They may very well be agents of this cosmic intelligence who are doing the bidding of this cosmic intelligence, intimately connected to that cosmic intelligence. These are the benevolent entities that people have reported throughout history. Now, we've created dogmas around them. We've formed religions around experiences with some of these others. But nevertheless, this is who they are at the core. And you'll notice earlier on, I read an account where they told Dorothy, don't be afraid. Interestingly, this is what angels frequently tell human beings in the Bible. You might wonder, why would people be afraid? They're encountering this beautiful creature that seems to be benevolent. It's because of the ontological shock. It happened even then, of course. These are still human beings having otherworldly experiences. These may very well be cases of the same beings, these beings of light that Dorothy is referencing. Now, speaking of these particular others, these beings of light, these angelic entities, what they are effectively saying to us, according to Dorothy, is that our ability to see and communicate freely and openly with them is really all up to us. They are not being standoffish. That would be a misreading of the situation. This really is about non-compatibility based on our current center of gravity in terms of consciousness. While that may be frustrating and disappointing to some, on the other hand, the implication is not only is a future contact and communion with these transcendent others possible, but if and when we eventually choose a path that is truly cooperative and peaceful, centered on a sense of cosmic connectivity and oneness, then it is actually inevitable. And as I'm sure we can all agree, may that day come sooner rather than later. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, let's keep this conversation going and growing. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacademian signing out.